Well, good morning, family. I invite you to take your Bibles, if you will, and open to the book of Genesis and chapter 3. Many years ago, when our kids were young, and I was just realizing the other day just how old they are, but I won't say that. Uh, I, I don't think any of them are here in the room right now. So, But, uh, wow, I don't know where the years went. But Anyway, when they were young, we went to Florida and did the whole Disney thing. Some of you have probably done that. At that time, there were two amusement parks in, in the Disney complex. Now there's four. Things have changed. Um, but we did, at that time, it was just Disney World and Epcot. And I don't know if you know this, but uh, Walt Disney's original vision for Epcot was not uh, what it is today. His original vision was to see a, an actual community, an actual city of some 20,000 or so residents, a city that showcased the wonders of what great communities we could build if we had good technology and good planning. Uh, actually, EPCOT stands for, let's see here, Experimental Prototype Communities of Tomorrow. And uh, so he envisioned this real city. And his whole thought was that, um, that uh, we could just build this, this awesome place where everybody would want to live. But after his death, instead of being built as a city, it was built as a theme park. And uh, at that time, when you would go in, you would enter the park, and you came to this big silver ball called the Spaceship Earth. And when you went inside, there were, as you went through it, there were all these audiovisual uh, presentations and displays that, that took you on a journey of man's history from the past to the present and to the future. The big theme was how technology is solving all of our problems and that man's great achievements will one day solve hunger and energy problems and medical problems and ultimately we will create these wonderful communities and we will all live in utopia. Ultimately, by the way, that is the optimistic view of evolution that man evolved from animals and we're getting better and better and uh, we're just going to keep getting better and better. The only thing that gets in the way of those viewpoints is, of course, history and the reality of human experience. They don't seem to match up with this whole thing that we're getting better and better and technology is going to solve all our problems. The Bible view of man is quite different. Man, as we have seen in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, man began perfect and he lived in a perfect environment. The utopia that Disney hoped for and that so many hoped for is what man once lived in. It was in the Garden of Eden. Man has fallen from the height, the pinnacle of his existence. Actually, the biblical view matches our observation of human history, matches our observation of human experience. Man isn't getting better and better. In fact, mankind is getting worse. The problem is not technology. 
not something technology can fix. It's a heart problem. Technology indeed does solve some problems. Technology certainly has advanced our ability to produce more food and actually enough food that could feed everybody. Uh, technology deals with some issues of transportation and, and of survival from heat and cold. We've fixed things. Clothing. Clothing is easy and cheap. And, and so many things technology has fixed. The problem is that as technology advances, it doesn't fix man. What it does is it gives man more tools to sin more on a wider scale and with greater ease. It gives us the ability to do evil more efficiently and more powerfully and on grander scales. We come today to Genesis chapter 3, which really is the saddest and most tragic chapter in all of the Bible. As we said in Genesis 1 and 2, man was perfect, lived in a perfect world. Everything was so good. God said, it is very good. Everything was just right. But today the world around us is flawed. It's broken. It's filled with violence. It's filled with disease. It's filled with death. What happened between Genesis 1 and 2 and today? What changed? The answer is here in Genesis chapter 3. Here is the explanation for the vast difference between that perfect world and the messed up place that surrounds us today. God's perfect design that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is challenged here in Genesis 3 when man is tempted and when man sins, the consequences are devastating We're going to spend today and the next two weeks here in this chapter looking at the fall of man. Follow along as I read this, the first six verses, our text for this morning. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. There it is. The account of the very first temptation and the sin that brought mankind's great fall. There are many things we could focus on this morning, but I want to just direct our attention in this passage to five important realities, five truths about temptation in this story. And I want to note them because they are significant, because they parallel our own temptations to sin. 
that we face in this day in our own lives. The first thing I notice as I look at this this account of the first temptation and the first sin is I notice that we have an enemy. The tempter, the tempter that's here is the serpent and the serpent is Satan. It doesn't say it directly in the text. If you look to find out, all you see is it's the serpent. So, Pastor, how do we know that this is Satan? Well, we find that from the rest of Scripture. There are other places. One clear one is Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, where it says, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. This is Satan. Satan... He's not only the tempter, he is our enemy. You're in big trouble if you have an enemy. You're in worse trouble if you have an enemy, but you refuse to acknowledge that they exist. You can't defend against an enemy that you won't acknowledge. It's a dangerous place to be. A few years ago, George Barna, the pollster, took a poll. And what he discovered was actually quite shocking. That here in the United States, right at 60% of those who identify themselves as Christians do not believe that there is actually a being called Satan. Satan doesn't exist, they say. Such folks are either ignorant of the Bible or they don't really believe that it's God's Word. Because the Bible could not be clearer. Satan is a being, a person. You find, I could go to many places, but one example is you go to the book of Job, Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2. Satan is there talking to God, and they talk about Job. And we won't go through the whole story, but... He has a conversation with God. That's a person, a being. You go to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 4. Jesus goes into the wilderness right before He begins His ministry. He goes into the wilderness and you know what happens. He's tempted. Who is He tempted by? Satan. He has conversations, interactions with Satan. You go to the book of Jude and you find in Jude verse 8 you have that the the archangel Michael gets into a dispute with Satan over the body of Moses. He's a person. You go to the book of Revelation. You go to the end of the book, Revelation chapter 20. There you discover that a non-being is cast into hell. No, a being is cast into hell. Satan, the great tempter of mankind. It's all through the Scripture. He is a real being. If you're here this morning and think there isn't really a Satan, you need to study your Bible. He exists and He is our enemy. Jesus says of Satan that He is a murderer. Here in in these verses, we witness a murder. We'll actually see it in the verses to come, but Satan here effectively murders the human race. Because He deliberately leads Adam and Eve into sin, full well knowing what the consequences of that sin will be. Death will come. 
They will die and death will enter the human race and the whole human race will die. That's why Jesus in John 8.44 says, He, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning. But not just content to bringing death to all humanity, Satan also aims to destroy us. Satan is by the way, a created being. He's a creature. He is not a rival to God. He is not a rival God. He's not, you know, the evil God versus the good God who are always duking it out. He's not the yin of the Chinese yin-yang philosophy, which there's good and evil and there's dark and light and everything is in balance. He's not the dark side of the force compared to the light side of the force. That's Star Wars. That's Eastern religious thought, but it is not Bible truth. It's not what the reality is. Satan is not a real competition to God. Satan is a creature whom God made, the Bible tells us. The first of God's creation. The Bible informs us that God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. That God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. That God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Satan is none of those. Satan's power is limited. His knowledge is limited. His presence is limited. By the way, what that means, it's very unlikely that Satan will ever deal personally with any of us. We're not that important. He has lots on his plate. He is limited in all of those things. But he does have at his disposal a whole legion of spirits, of demons. And So yes, are satanic powers at work in this world? And are they involved in the temptation and and in dealing with mankind? Yes. But Satan is a defeated enemy. And that's, his defeat was accomplished at the cross and it will be realized at the return of Jesus Christ, which we'll see in Revelation 20 in a few weeks, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Until then, Satan and his forces are active and he desires to destroy. Satan aims to destroy us. He desires to wreck our lives by leading us into rebellion against God, leading us into sin. And that's why Peter writes in 1 Peter 5.8, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It is such a significant thing for us to grasp, I think, that God put it here, chapter 3 of the Bible. You have an enemy. Sin came into this world because Satan came in and led mankind into sin and he's been busy ever since and is busy today trying to destroy. We need to know that. Second thing I notice here in this passage of this first temptation and the first sin is that temptation comes nicely packaged. Of course it does. <laughs> but the serpent, it says, is more crafty than the other beasts 
than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. That word more crafty means that it's, it means shrewd or subtle or prudent. It can be a good thing, a good quality, but here it's used in a negative sense. It means that it's shrewd or subtle or crafty with an evil intention, with an evil purpose. He's cunning. He is sneaky. And so the temptation is often very subtle, often sneaky. It comes nicely packaged. It is attractive. Apparently, the serpent is attractive. When we read serpent, we think snake. And we think, but that wasn't the case. It was attractive. At that time, we see later in this chapter, we'll discover that at that time, the serpent was upright, apparently on legs. Upright and apparently was very attractive, not repulsive, not disgusting, because temptation comes well packaged. It's a serpent, but it is also Satan. He appears as a serpent some way or other. And it suggests to me that temptation often comes in disguise. It appears harmless. It comes from sources or people that we don't expect, things that we, we wouldn't associate with, with Satan. That's why Paul writes to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and he says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. We have an enemy And the temptations from the enemy come nicely packaged. Third thing I note about temptation here is that temptation calls to us, it leads us to doubt God. Again, verse 1, He said to the woman, Did God actually say? The first thing that that He calls us to doubt is to doubt God's Word. The question here is really more than just a question. The intent of the question is to plant seeds, to give innuendo that he hopes to grow into doubt. Maybe, just maybe, you see, God's Word might be open to debate. Did God actually say? Maybe you heard wrong. Maybe you misunderstood. Maybe God didn't actually mean it. You know God, He's always kidding around. Maybe He said it, but He shouldn't have. I mean, surely He didn't really say that, did He? See, He's trying to create doubt. Doubt God's Word, and then He moves on to leading us to doubt God's Word because God's character is in doubt. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Satan quotes God's command to Adam. Well, not actually. He misquotes God's command. And he he does it intentionally to to make God seem that God is unkind, that God is harsh, that God is unreasonable. Did God really say don't eat of any tree? Wow, that's harsh. Eve recognizes that God has been misquoted. And she goes to defend God. She goes 
and aims to correct the serpent's misquote. And the woman said to the serpent, says there in verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. She aims to correct the serpent, but in the process there's a couple of subtle but key differences between what she says and what God actually said. You see, first God had said this, you, sh- you may surely eat of every tree that's in the garden. Every tree of the garden. But she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. You see, the difference is pretty subtle. Is you may surely eat. That's, that really is, is another way of saying, go at it. <laughs> Have at it. Freely eat, as the, the NIV translated. You may eat freely of any tree, of every tree. They're all there. Go gorge yourself. You see, that's what God said. And she says, yeah, we can eat of the trees. She, she left out the language of freedom. She left out the language of bounty, of huge blessing. She said, yeah, God said we can eat of the fruit of the trees. See the difference. It's subtle. And secondly, God had said, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. God said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Eve added something else. She added something. She left out the the language of bounty and and blessing and, and freedom and she adds an extra restriction. She says, you must not touch it. You see, perhaps unwittingly she's begun to buy in to some of what Satan is selling. What he's trying to do is very subtly shift the, the thinking from God as a generous provider of wonderful things to God is holding back just a little bit. To focus on God as prohibiting rather than providing. To focus on, instead of on blessings, to focus on what I don't have or can't have. It's subtle, but he's shifting her thinking. And maybe it's because God really doesn't care. Another little subtle thing in the text we wouldn't see in English, but if you look, it's interesting to notice that Satan, the word he uses for God, is Elohim. In chapter 1, we notice that that the Genesis account uses Elohim as the name for God. And it means, does anybody remember? God Almighty or Almighty God. And the focus in in the big picture of creation is on the great power of God, the Almighty who speaks and things come into existence. Chapter 2, as we go back and review day 6 where God creates man, you recall that the text adds something and it uses two names for God. It keeps Elohim, but in front of it it puts, in your English it says Lord in all caps, which is Yahweh or Jehovah, the personal name for God. 
The name that God uses when He interacts with His people. It's the name that God uses in relationship and in covenant. And Satan, when he talks here about God, says Elohim, Almighty God, but he doesn't talk about Yahweh, personal God. And Eve, when she responds to Satan, she uses the same terms Satan used. Elohim, God. And the reason that's significant is because it's making God distant. He's all-powerful. He's running the universe. He really doesn't have time for you. You see, I think that's it's very subtle. The shifting thinking. You know, maybe God really isn't paying attention to what we think and what we need down here. Perhaps. It's a little bit, by the way, if we kind of put it in our own way of talking. If I was talking about my dad, and instead of saying my dad, I say Mr. Spa. Or if you're talking about your dad, and you refer to him as Mr. Whatever. You see, it's accurate, it's true, it's correct, but doesn't it miss the point of relationship? And that's exactly what Satan has done. God isn't kind. He's made prohibitions. God doesn't care. He's distant. Eve makes one more small omission as she's trying to correct what Satan says. And she says that of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not... Well, of the tree that's in the center of the garden, she says, you shall not eat or touch it because... For in the day that you eat of it, she says, you will die. But God says, back in Genesis chapter 2, for in the day you eat of it, you shall, one little word she left out, surely die. Again, it's a small thing. But you see, Satan knows God's words very well. And Satan loves to take God's word and just twist and distort it and use it against us. And He loves to take our ignorance of God's Word and use it against us. She omits the word surely, but Satan, when he responds to her, he puts it back in. He knows it well. And he says, he quotes what God says, you shall surely die. Except in the Hebrew, he puts it In the front, he puts one more word that in English he puts in the middle. He says, not, you shall surely die. In the English, the way it reads in English, you shall surely not die. Or you shall not surely die. See, now what he does is he calls into question God's truthfulness. He can't be trusted. He's a liar. He says you're going to die, but you won't. He's a liar because he doesn't care. Because he's really not kind, you see. That's the case he's being. You see how subtle it is? Well, he's a master manipulator. God can't be trusted, so he wants us to not only doubt God's character, but to doubt God's judgment. God says, if you eat of the tree, you will surely die. And Satan says, no, you won't. No, you won't. It won't really happen. 
I mean, after all, what's death? And Eve's going, yeah, what is death? See, in their experience, they haven't even seen death yet. God said, don't eat a tree, because if you do, this will happen. But what is that? Never seen it yet. So why should we be scared of it? Plus, how do we know it's really going to happen? Maybe it is just scare tactics. God just wouldn't really do that anyway. Because He's good and loving. Don't we hear that kind of argument all the time today against not sinning? Or against, you know what... You know, God really wouldn't send someone to hell. A loving God wouldn't do that. God really doesn't judge sin because He understands people and He's loving. Right? We hear that stuff all the time. But that's not what God says. Temptation comes nicely packaged and it calls us, it leads us to doubt God. There's a fourth thing I notice about temptation here. And that is temptation makes big promises. Don't be deceived because the brochure is deceiving. Like a lot of those travel brochures. (laughs) You know, a few years ago, our family decided to go on vacation to Florida. We were going to have a little family reunion. Rented a house right there on the beach. Wow, the pictures were beautiful. And then we got there. Have any of you all ever been in that kind of situation? Oh my goodness. Janet and I were trying to figure out how we could ditch the rest of the family and just go get into a hotel. There wasn't a good way to do that. Oh my. Don't trust the pictures. The brochure for sin always has great pictures. And Satan lays it out here. He says, God knows. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And then you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Wow, look at the pictures. What's evil? I don't know, but it must be good. We'll be like God. Oh, God is good. Huh. It arouses curiosity and intrigue, possibility, wonder. There is some truth in what Satan says. There is always some truth in what Satan says, or we wouldn't give it a second thought. There's also enough lie where it's deadly. The truth is, they will come to know evil if they eat of the fruit, but they won't come to know evil like God knows evil. Unlike God, they will know evil by experience. They will be corrupted by it. They will be marred and scarred and polluted and stained by it. They will be killed by it. Truth. They will come to know evil. But it's a big lie that they will be like God. Matter of fact, 
they will end up being less like God than they were when they started. Because remember, go back to Genesis 1, they were created in the image of God. Perfectly created in the image of God to be a reflection of the glory and the beauty of God Himself. The holiness of God. That image of God will be stained and marred by sin. So instead of being more like God, they end up being less like Him. Don't ever believe the brochure that sin produces, that it publishes. The brochure is deceiving. Satan says, hey, you deserve this. You deserve this. You're you're a victim here. God is holding out on you. God is holding out because He doesn't want competition. He doesn't want you to be like Him, knowing good and evil. So he's, he's, He's feeding you a line here. He loves to make us into victims. Because as soon as we become victims, we become vulnerable. We become vulnerable because it's easy then to rationalize whatever we want because after all, I'm a victim. And so we can lie, we can cheat, we can steal, we can gossip, we can indulge ourselves, we can do whatever we want because I deserve it because I was cheated. Right? He loves making victims. And you here are a victim, he says, of God lying to you. Another thing about this temptation that makes big promises is it looks so good. It seems so good. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it says in verse 6, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. When she looked at it, she saw it was good for food. It appealed to the appetites. Oh, that would be good. It was, when she looked at it, she saw it looked beautiful. It appealed to sight. Appealed to our eyes. It was attractive. When she saw that it was desirable, it was useful to make someone wise to to get something they'd never seen. We're going to understand good and evil. It appealed to pride. See, it's the same dangerous traps that we face today. The Bible calls them in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, where it warns against the lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, when it warns against the lust of the eyes, things that are attractive and bright and shiny, and when it warns against the boastful pride of life, the things that make us feel good and feel important. And, and all of those things are at work in temptation today, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's what brought Adam and Eve down And it's still at work today. Scripture warns against it. But we see it just looks so good and so we rationalize it. How can it be wrong when it looks so good? How can it be wrong when it promises so much? Sin promises much, but it delivers so little. And the price is never posted, but the bill always comes due. And it's always much higher than we ever thought. It's the anatomy of temptation. We have an enemy. 
Temptation comes nicely packaged. It calls on us to, and leads us to doubt God and it makes big promises but it should never, which it never delivers. One last thing I notice here about temptation and about sin is that sin loves company. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Eve ate, the first thing she does is she passes it on to Adam who joined in her sin. He was complicit in it all. He was there all along. The whole time he was there when she took the first bite and he didn't try to stop her, nor did he let her sin alone. He joined right in. And ever since then, people in sin love having other people sin with them just doesn't seem to be as wrong when there's a bunch of us doing it together, right? So we always try to talk our brother and sister into doing whatever it is we know is wrong. We always try to grab folks from the office to go do whatever is wrong. It's always good to go to Vegas and do what's wrong because it all stays in Vegas. No, it doesn't. But it's most people's favorite excuse when considering sin. Everybody's doing it. Well, one thing we should learn here is there are no small sins. None of them. This one act, this one little sin started an avalanche of consequences from which all the rest of creation still reels today. One little sin. I mean, what is, what's, I mean, come on, really taking a bite of some fruit? Brought death on the whole human race? And disease and destruction and all the mess and everything rotten in this world today came out of that one sin? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Yes. Because it was the one thing God said don't do. There are no little sins. Sin plunged us under the curse of sin. It it plunged us into death and disease and devastation and it condemned every person to hell. That's what sin did. Sin is the reason Jesus came. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. God became one of us. He came to give Himself, to die on the cross as a sacrifice in our place for our sin. To pay for the guilt that we owed. In so doing, He became the way that the stain of sin, the guilt of sin can be lifted from our heart, from our life, from us. Simply by, the Bible says, by trusting Jesus as our Savior. And then, as John 3.16 promises, we have everlasting life. If you're here this morning and you have yet to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Scripture, Jesus Christ Himself, calls to you and begs you, pleads with you to trust Him and to find the forgiveness and life that He gives. For all of us who this morning who are believers in Jesus Christ, there's a message here for us as well. 
when we look and we see the reality of the damage of sin, when we see the cost of sin, it should cause us to hate sin in our life. When we see what sin has brought into our life, into this world, upon the human race, what it cost Jesus to remedy it for us, we should hate it. We should desire to get it out of our lives. We should desire to live the holy life that God has called us to do in Scripture. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Our desire should be like the old evangelist Billy Sunday. Ever since I first read this quote many years ago, I fell in love with it. Our desire should be this. He said, listen, I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I've got a foot. I'll fight it as long as I've got a fist. I'll butt it as long as I've got a head. And I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it until I go home to glory. And it goes home to perdition. That's the attitude we should have. But can I say that way too often in my life and probably in yours, our attitude towards sin is we play with it, we toy with it, we trifle with it. Yeah, all those sins are horrible and rotten, but we have our favorite little few. (laughs) The ones that we rationalize, the ones we justify, the ones we just play around with. It shouldn't be that way, should it? Let's pray. Father, we've needed to be reminded of these things. One little sin brought devastation that runs rampant in this world and in our lives. It required Jesus taking the punishment for our sin in order to redeem us. How then can we go back and play in it and think it's no big deal? Lord, create in us a desire for holiness. Create in us the passion that Billy Sunday expressed to fight sin in our life. To recognize that we will face temptation probably every single day we live. Father, may the realities that we've seen here in this temptation, may we get a little heads up. Here's here's how it works. May we fight it. May we cling to the promise You've made that there's no temptation taken man. But it's taken us. But it's common to man. But You're faithful and with the temptation always make a way of escape. Father, may we take it. May our aim to be to live holy lives that honor our Lord Jesus who saved us and honor You who made us. Until that day when we finally stand face to face with You, finally being what we were created to be, to be holy and perfect. How we long for that day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.